I'm Abby Strauss, and welcome to The Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. Edward Shorter is a professor of medical history at the University of Toronto. Dr. Shorter, thank you so much for joining us this evening. A pleasure. I'm very curious, sir, what moved your interest from general medicine into writing about the history of medicine? It, I, I say it with great respect because it's an invaluable thing, but what moved you in that direction? There are, there are ways in, in which the history of medicine can be beneficial to clinicians. In an area like nephrology or cardiology, you can be a perfectly competent clinician and really no zip about your field. But there are other areas where it really does help to have an understanding of where the field has come from. And psychiatry and psychopharmacology are two of those fields. Oh, I, I agree. People say that the American medical community has made incredible progress since World War II. Before we get into the specifics of psychiatry, what made it so productive, and, and is that momentum still present? There were two factors that made American medicine a, a world leader after the Second World War. One was the tragic but uh, enormous influx of Jewish refugee scientists and clinicians from Europe. They came here escaping the Holocaust, and they really transformed the American biomedical scene from being a kind of provincial left behind to a world power, uh, and such was the measure of their influence in at NIMH, NIH, the big teaching hospitals in New York, in Los Angeles, in, in virtually every major teaching center in the United States, the influx of the Jewish refugees was of enormous importance. Secondly is the enormous amount of money that Congress gave to uh, NIH and NIMH. America became a world biomedical power in, in part because research here was so much more richly funded than elsewhere. Is it still going on today? Yes, it is. The U.S. is still the world power in biomedicine, and Congress spends uh, untold billions of dollars on basic medical research and clinical research as well, far more than any other country lays out, and the benefits are clear. The bulk of major medical advances in the second half of the 20th century has come from the United States. Do you States. see that it is more so in psychiatry as opposed to other branches of medication, a medication, excuse me, of medicine? Well, psychiatry is a, a little bit of an of a anomaly uh, because the sort of full range of research techniques that is available in cardiology or nephrology is not really available in psychiatry because we still don't know what the basic pathophysiology of psychiatric illness is. And so there are just lots of areas that we can't go, or if we go there, we don't get very far, such as brain physiology. And uh, we have an enormous European uh, tradition of psychiatry and psychopharmacology on which we build. But if, if anything, you know, psychiatry uh, has uh, taken a backward step in the United States rather than a forward step as in the other medical How sciences. So? The, diagno the, the diagnoses that we have today are not as accurate as the diagnoses in the 1950s and 60s and uh, many truly effective medications from those past years have really gone out of style and they have been replaced by medications such as the SSRIs that are frankly not quite That's as effective. That's an interesting concept. It's a very interesting concept. Do people agree with you on that? Because I, I can hear people saying, what? This is unusual. Well, I know it's a, a kind of an unusual 
way to look at it, since in medicine as a whole, we're uh, so reflexly accustomed to the idea of progress and medical progress. But it is possible to lose medical knowledge. It's possible to lose ground. And I think that in uh, psychiatry and in psychopharmacology, certainly in the area of mood disorders, we have been losing ground. And let me just add that uh, insiders in these fields fully agree with what I'm saying, although they are a little bit loath of saying it publicly because it is so uh, shocking to their colleagues who are, who are in the trenches. If someone were just casually listening to this, listening to this, they might think that using the older medications would be more therapeutic or beneficial than the newer ones. This is contrary to the way we're sort of trained to think. It is indeed contrary to the way we're uh, trained to think, but it's nonetheless true. Uh, drugs that came out in the 1950s, such as the MAOIs and the tricyclic antidepressants, uh, agents such as meprobamate, are clearly superior to the SSRIs in terms of safety and efficacy. What can we do then as a, um, as a community to get the best health care to our patients? Clearly, the movement towards generic drugs might inadvertently bring us back to the older medications. Well, that's right, but the generic drugs have to be taught in training programs, first of all, and fewer the training programs where residents today learn about the MAORs or the TCAs. Instead, what they learn about are the SSRIs and the atypical antipsychotics. I'm, I'm not making the argument that in the area of psychosis we've been losing ground, but in the area of mood disorders, I think that we have been. And what, yeah, what can we do to overcome this? Uh, for one thing, we have to free ourselves from the marketing uh, patterns of the pharmaceutical industry because uh, industry markets only patent-protected compounds, and there is absolutely no guarantee that a patent-protected compound is going to be superior in terms of safety and efficacy to an older, non-patent-protected you know, compound. It, it brings up an interesting point because you have such an interest in history, it almost as if it's almost as if we should require courses in medical school, and I must confess that I don't recall having a course in medical school on the issues of medical history, learning about the older medications and how things evolved and were designed and used and tested and thrown away at times. Well, this is a, a kind of general argument that a historian would find it impossible to resist. Of course, we should be learning more about history of all kinds. But, that, but for most medical fields, that wouldn't have any particular clinical implications. In psychiatry and psychopharmacology, it does have clinical implications. To look at, for example, at something like ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, the number of programs that are now teach ECT is rising slowly, but still there's a good chance that you as a psychiatry resident can finish your training without ever having had a hands-on experience in ECT. ECT is the most powerful treatment that there is in psychiatry and it's uh, it verges on malpractice that so few clinicians are knowledgeable enough about it to refer and patients you see it changing it. you see the pattern changing well it's changing slowly now as the discipline as a whole definitely is rediscovering ECT but this rediscovery is slow there's no doubt about it and if you uh, depend on your psychiatric knowledge for going to conventions that are funded by industry, medical meetings that are funded by industry, you won't hear a word about ECT. It's not that there's some kind of conspiracy against ECT on the part of industry. It's just that it's not at all in their knowledge to 
subsidize uh, research and presentations on it simply because it is much more powerful than psychopharma. So uh, this is very intriguing. You're giving me a lot of things to think about, and it keeps going back to my notion that perhaps in medical school there needs to be a good solid semester or two and how things evolved and why they drifted away. Well, I I think that this kind of teaching is very instructive, but it has to be discipline-specific. I I think there is relatively little benefit in uh, cardiology or immunology to teaching about the history of the discipline. This will interest older practitioners who have a kind of historical bent that they've acquired over the years, but I really can't see it as having a crucial role in the training of medical students or in residency programs, except for uh, the areas where you really can get something clinically out of looking at the past because of this losing ground element. And this is very true in psychiatry and psychopharmacology. It's a little bit less true in uh, neurology. Uh, But I think those are the fields where history really does have something to teach us. Would you you say that there has been an impact on this trend because of the influence of insurance and third-party payers as they come into the practice of medicine and psychiatry? Well, uh, third-party payers are very loath to uh, pay for treatments that they consider to be less effective. And they've had the same kind of brainwashing as everybody else. Third-party payers love the SSRIs simply because they've been advertised so widely and and insurance companies think that these really must be the agents of choice. Look at these old drugs like meprobamate or the MAOIs, the TZAs, whoever heard of this stuff, certainly we aren't paying for it. So there's a, a, a kind of... Uh, wall of disbelief to overcome in dealing with the third-party payers. But hey, you know, off-patent drugs are are cheaper than patented drugs by far. And if you can get people to start prescribing TCAs for melancholic depression, then you're going to save, at the end of the day, a lot of money. But you are absolutely correct in the sense that the focus of training is not to learn how to use those old medications. No, in, instead there's a, a spirit of uh, dubiety uh, is inculcated in uh, our residents. They learn about side effects. They learn about why TCAs are a bad idea, ooh, cardiac side effects and so forth, MAOIs, cheese effect. And so what they end up is learning about the reasons not to use them. But the uh, balance between efficacy and side effects uh, is just overwhelming in favor of efficacy in dealing with these older agents, and that is what we've lost sight of. And that's part of the importance of understanding the history of medicine. Well, uh, it's not so important in my view that people learn about Paracelsus and Morgani and so forth, although I'm certainly not going to scorn that kind of knowledge, but it is of urgent clinical significance to learn about treatments that work. ECT, MAOIs, TCAs, even amphetamines, these represent effective treatments. Oh, I can just imagine a number of people listening to you and going, oh my goodness. Well, they might go, oh my goodness, but that's because they're poorly informed about the actual history of uh, these agents. As a, as a medical historian, I've gone back and I've looked at the data from these past times, and the data speak overwhelmingly in favor of safety and in favor of efficacy.
Fascinating. You know, you, you, this brings us to another area that I noticed that you had written about, and it's an understanding of a condition. In the year 2000, you wrote a book about the Kennedy family and mental retardation. And when the book was reviewed, the reviewer said, the last sentence was that a reviewer wished that every physician would read the first chapter. It raised the question about what physicians were missing in their training about mental retardation. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Well, in uh, the 1950s, clinicians learned that mental retardation was psychiatric illness caused by poor parenting. And it pains me even to uh, repeat these terms now because they are so far off base. Uh, it was uh, taught that mental retardation was a irreversible disease and that once you had it, you were really an outcast from society. You were little better than a vegetable. The whole idea of letting kids develop to the maximum of their abilities had not even dawned. This is the era of the institution for uh, kids with MR and many, many parents were advised by their family physicians to pack their children off to these institutions where they basically became non-persons. And this is a, a horror tableau that characterized the world of MR in the middle third of the 20th century. And it's very much to the credit of the Kennedy family that led by Eunice Schreiber, who is uh, John Kennedy's sister, the Kennedy Foundation did a lot to turn this situation around and to make uh, kids with MR persons again. And the major uh, vehicle they chose for this was the Special Olympics. The Special Olympics have really transformed the MR scene and the people, uh, the selfless volunteers who've worked so hard on behalf of uh, Special Olympics deserve collectively a Nobel Prize. Do you think that uh, physicians and particularly psychiatrists, other than perhaps child psychiatrists, that they're being adequately trained to understand mental retardation? Well, mental retardation today has passed from psychiatry to pediatrics. Uh, psychiatrists today don't see that much mental retardation, or once they make the diagnosis, they refer the child to pediatric care. There are a number of childhood psychiatric conditions that really, the labeling of which gives me the creeps, such as oppositional defiant disorder, which is seen as psychiatric, uh, ADHD, again, psychiatric. The whole, whole world of pediatric psychiatry is just infiltrated with artifacts and conditions that are poorly differentiated from one another and that at the end of the day may be very hard to differentiate from normal behavior. Is it changing, though? Is it changing in the right direction? No, it's changing in the wrong direction. With every subsequent edition of DSM, the number of these peculiar pediatric diagnoses multiplies. Autism is split into fragments. The you know bad boys now have these design all of panoply of diagnoses ranging from ADHD to oppositional defiant disorder. Just on and on it goes. And this whole business is again a reminder of that there once was a world of childhood that didn't have any of these psychiatric diagnoses and hey guess what most of those kids at the end of the day did perfectly well the the problems now in terms of all these diagnostic things uh, occurring let me phrase it this way why is there such a difficult time making the diagnosis is it that perhaps as you suggest the diagnosis doesn't even exist or is this completely being misread but, well there's a huge difficulty in differentiating pathological behavior 
from normal behavior in children, and this particularly affects rambunctious boys. So that lots of the boys who get the diagnosis of diagnosis of ADHD are would really have just been considered troublemakers and given a good paddling in school 30 or 40 years ago. That, of course, is unthinkable today, and so we control them by putting them in a chemical straitjacket. Uh, is this a good idea? Well, it, it coincides with uh, enlightened ideas of child-rearing. Is it good for the children? Well, is it? Uh, are we really doing these kids a favor by putting them on these cocktails of antipsychotics and uh, amphetamines for years so that, in fact, many of them go on into adulthood in the belief that they have adult ADHD? They stay on amphetamine. They stay on antipsychotics. We are not doing these people a favor by handing out these diagnoses so liberally. At the same time, there is uh, such a thing as ADHD. I'm, I'm not calling it a non-existent uh, condition, such as moonbeams, but there are uh, biological markers for it. Uh, the, there are EEG markers for uh, ADHD, for example, and there is a core of kids who have positive uh, EEGs who really have a often genetic condition uh, involving hyperactivity and deserve to be diagnosed and treated um, uh, professionally. But above and beyond this core of children who really are uh, afflicted with uh, genuine psychopathology, there's this huge range of bad boys who are simply bad, but shouldn't be on amphetamines and antipsychotics. And don't get me started on the subject of bipolar disorder in children. This has just gone completely out of control and is another way of uh, giving kids a kind of chemical straitjacket whose only problem is that they sometimes object to what parents and teachers are saying. We'll make that the subject for another day in another interview. Um, I'd like to hear finally, if we can, because we just have a little bit of time. You wrote a, a very interesting book called Written in the Flesh, A History of Desire. And in it, there seemed to be a suggestion that there is a social price for the different or perhaps freer expression of sexuality. I'd, I'd like to hear what you mean by a social price for a freer expression. Let me, let me just say, first of all, that I, I think the flowering of sexuality that we've experienced in the last 30 years is, on the whole, a good thing. I'm certainly not arguing for a return to the repressive puritanical days when the only form of sexuality tolerated was the missionary position. But there has been a price, and that is that as couples get into this kind of hedonic sexual behavior that involves a really highly sensualized form of eroticism, they tend to detach themselves from the community. They tend to engage in cocooning, thriving on their emotional life as a couple to the exclusion of things like voting or going to church, having dinner parties, uh, joining clubs, all the different ways in which people once interacted extensively with the community fall away as couples sink into hedonism. I don't think the hedonism necessarily is a bad idea in terms of gastronomy, in terms of sexuality, in terms of uh, fast cars, but there is a price that we have to pay for it, and that price is called community engagement. I find it very interesting to hear you talk like this because you speak from the position not of someone just looking at what is going on today, but with a historical perspective, and I, that's just enough of a different twist that it makes people have to stop and think for a moment and look at the larger picture. It, it's it's very fascinating, and I truly appreciate your work. We have been speaking 
this evening with Dr. Edward Shorter, who is a professor of medical history at the University of Toronto. His observations of what has occurred in this incredible world of ours are very, very interesting, and I suggest that people look at it a bit more closely and, and learn from his work. Dr. Shorter, thank you so much for joining us.